Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's show is focused on the SEC. As you're probably aware, Gary Gensler was sworn in as the SEC chair in April, leaving one question on registrants' minds, what to expect from his agenda. So today we're going to examine that very question. With me today are Kyle Moffat, a PwC partner and former chief accountant and disclosure program director in the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance, and Michael O'Brien, a managing director from our federal affairs practice. We're happy you've joined us for this episode of speculation about where the SEC's agenda and rulemaking may go. So Kyle, Michael, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about what we can expect to see from the SEC over the next few months with uh, Gary Gensler's appointment. But before we delve specifically into the SEC, Michael, I thought it'd be helpful for our listeners to just set the broader stage in what's going on in Washington. We had a big address from Biden to Congress this week and what that means and how that's going to start influencing the SEC agenda. I think that's a great place to start. As you mentioned, President Biden gave a his first address to a joint Congress, uh, not a State of the Union technically because it was uh, his first address. But the address to Congress was interesting. It reminded me of President Bill Clinton's address in 1993, where uh, he issued you know one of the biggest or most memorable one-liners, which is, "The era of big government is over." And if you look at President Biden's address and you know how far we've come since when. Bill Clinton was president. The era of big government is not over. We're on the dawn of an era of new big government, which is we're looking to the government to get more involved and more helpful in people's lives. So I thought that that was interesting, but it also sets up a a partisan battle where Republicans who were all too quick to spend over the past few Republican administrations now have this budget austerity standpoint, and they're loath to flood the economy with Six trillion. We already have two trillion done through the COVID relief bill, and now an additional four trillion through uh, infrastructure packages. So what it does is it sets the stage for more gridlock. I think that's going to kind of suck the oxygen out of the air in Congress and in Washington, moving forward all the way through probably August, and then after that, there's going to be movement to fund the government by September 30th. So my point of bringing all that up is to say that Congress is kind of preoccupied. So what's happened in past administrations when there's been a lack of bipartisanship, when Congress has had difficulty passing any sort of legislation, the focus has been on the regulatory agencies, because that's where a lot of the work can get done. You don't necessarily need bipartisanship because you usually do have a partisan uh, makeup of these commissions, such as the SEC, which is now 3-2 now that Chairman Gensler has arrived. So I think it's important for clients to look at the regulatory agencies to see where there is opportunity and where there's vulnerability and where the action is going to be focused on moving forward. Uh, You also have the same with executive orders. So I do think you should look to the uh, executive branch and see what President Biden has already done on the EO front, but then also what he might be doing moving forward. So I think the SEC is going to be particularly active under Chairman Gensler. He has a history uh, at the CFTC of uh, being a very active participant. But one of the challenges might be prioritizing all the different things that he, I know, wants to get accomplished at the SEC. And he will work with other agencies and other entities, including the interagency group called FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And they've already met once in March with Secretary Yellen chairing that 
the FSOC, and have laid out some priorities, including hedge fund oversight, mutual funds, uh, fixed market, fixed income market, things like that. So it's not going to be a lack of things to do. It's going to be prioritizing what exactly Chairman Gensler and this SEC want to accomplish. Well, and, you know, starting with Biden's program, I have so many questions about that, but I am having Roz Brooks on next week to talk more about that. So I'm not going to delve too deeply into it, but I do want to go back to your comment on priorities and two questions coming from that. But let's start with, you mentioned the interagency group. And so again, let's stick with a bit of background for the listeners. How do the agencies work together and how would we expect the SEC to be working with other agencies, particularly on some of these priority items? The FSOC is a group of financial regulators that their basic purpose is to ensure the stability of the financial markets and the economy more broadly. So looking at different issues and different items that are kind of top of the agenda now, as I said, Hedge fund oversight, I think you'll see a renewed focus there. Uh, The hedge fund working group, which has not met since 2016, has already been tasked with regrouping. The FSOC has already told the SEC that they want to have a renewed focus on money market funds, on fixed income funds, things like that. And then also, as we get into the discussion on crypto, I think you're going to find that's an issue that kind of transcends one regulator. Uh, The SEC might be looking at certain aspects from investor protection. But then the CFTC and Treasury are also going to be involved in looking at things like Bitcoin and the SEC then also looking at possibly crypto ETFs and things like that. So that's a particular issue that's going to, as I said, transcend different financial regulators. So the regulators will be working in concert on much of this agenda in the capital markets and in the economy more broadly. Well, and I think, Michael, we're going to get to a whole segment on climate, so I don't want to dwell on it now. One other question now, it's it's interesting. I had Kyle on a week or I guess a week ago talking about uh, the SEC request for comment on client. But one of the questions I asked him then was how the SEC rulemaking interacted with, you know, examples where the legislature has acted alone. And I wanted to bring that up here because you mentioned bipartisanship and, you know, getting the agenda forward that maybe rulemaking is a way to do that. So can, again, by way of background, what are the types of things the SEC can do by itself and then where they would need perhaps Congress um, or the executive branch to weigh in? Well, you know, traditionally, Congress would pass a law and then it'd be up to the individual agencies to implement the rules to implement the law and to enforce the law and so on and so forth. So the SEC already has a mandate in certain areas to promulgate rules and such. Now, Congress then has something called the Congressional Review Act, which they can then look at rules that have been put in place and either approve or deny them or or to repeal them. Uh, But that has to be done within a certain period of time after the rule was put in place. So there's only a certain amount of rules that can come under CRA oversight. But, uh, you know, I think the SEC is going to take their the mandate that, that they have and are going to get active in areas like climate. We've already seen that Acting Chair Lee has started that process. And I think increased disclosures across ESG are probably forthcoming, you know, in the coming months. Uh, we know that the comment period has already come out and there's already set up a task force on climate at the SEC. And to your earlier point, climate is the perfect example of not something that just ties together the financial regulators, but ties together the entire federal government. Uh, you look at John Kerry, who is in the newly established climate czar role, and that is all, across all facets of the federal government. So climate is the ultimate interagency priority, and I would say probably is number one for the Biden administration because it is 
a generational priority. And it's it's a legacy issue that many believe has not been addressed and, and not been addressed properly. So uh, I think that's the perfect example of interagency cooperation. All right. Well, and climate's definitely worthy of its own discussion. So we'll get to that. But again, one more sort of background question. Kyle, I'm going to turn to you. And you have a very unique perspective given your time in Corp Fin. And so can you give us some thoughts on what listeners should expect to see over the next few months at the SEC, given the fact that there is a new chair? Sure. You know, I've always found that these times are are very fascinating. I, I think even while I was the staff, it was always fascinating to see the direction that the agency was going to head. You know, right now, I think you know, we're seeing appointments of the senior staff and in, in the various offices and divisions. And I think we'll continue to see some. And those individuals are going to work closely with Chair Gensler to, to help set the agenda for the agency over, over the next few years. I guess an early indication, and we talked a little bit about this, but is thinking about the potential direction of the agency can be gleaned from his prior history as a regulator, um, but also from from his Senate confirmation hearing, which which you know, I think we'll continue to talk about throughout this podcast. Um, another item I th- I think people should really keep an eye on is the Reg Flex agenda. Um, and so for those that don't know, I mean, the regulatory flexibility agenda requires each agency twice a year, um, April and October, to publicize its agenda, you know, identifying those rules that the agency plans to focus on in the next 12 months. And so the act requires this notice of these rules for a reason. Essentially, they're rules that are likely to have, and I'll quote this, a significant economic impact on a substantial number of small entities. So, so the RegFlex agenda is pretty telling about the, the direction they're going to head. I also find that press releases and, of course, public statements, which we've seen from Acting Chair Lee over the past few months, have been uh, pretty telling um, as well. With all of that said, look, the, the rulemaking process doesn't happen overnight. They go through a somewhat lengthy process. Um, they start with a concept release, um, soliciting feedback um, or input from the public to really help inform whether rulemaking is warranted or, or even the potential path forward for a particular rulemaking. Um, and then, of course, you know, once they get that feedback, they may have roundtables or oftentimes they'll, they'll publish a proposing release that provides the public with the opportunity to review and comment. And then obviously, once that happens, the staff will then work on a, an adopting release that would then also be voted on by the commission. And so I guess the biggest point there is, is, look, you know, the public needs to be paying attention to what's going on, you know, with respect to the right flex agenda, the potential for rulemakings, and then monitoring the progress, um, because the comment process is a very important piece of the puzzle there. And, and it's really informative for the commission and its staff. I mean, they really do consider the comments. And so we really need to encourage, uh, you know, folks to interact with the staff. So, Kyle, listening to you just now talk about the process and having interviewed you and Ryan Spencer over the past few years about rulemaking, sounds like the process could take a long time. So what's maybe a fast track agenda of how fast you could expect to see something happen? That's a great question. I think we've seen some rulemakings that have been pretty quick. For the most part, I think you, you can expect at least a year. Um, for a lot of, especially some of these, I think that are, you know, going to be potentially polarizing issues, right? And so you're going to have a lot of a commentary from the public, a lot of interest. So when you think of ESG and and even climate, there are so many moving parts there that at least with ESG more broadly, it's not going to be a one year thing. It's going to take some time, and and that's precisely I think why you know then Acting Chair Lee published this request for comment. Really, is just let's hit the ground running today. You know, let's get the ball rolling, get the conversation started because you know, hey, if we only have this, you know, 
three or four year window to accomplish something, we, we need to get started sooner than later. Well, and to that point, Michael, how does politics fit into this process? Do they just let the SEC process run or is are there aspects here where perhaps Congress um, will want to weigh in? No, Congress will be very active, you know, through the, the rule writing process uh, and promulgation and, and such. Uh, Congress will be active in that there'll be oversight, meaning that on both sides of the aisle, people will be watching this process, commenting, uh, trying to influence the process as best they can, again, on both sides. Obviously, greater transparency and disclosure on the ESG front has been a priority on the Democratic side of the aisle for a long time. Republicans are much more focused on materiality. So that's where it kind of comes down to. Republicans are all for voluntary disclosures, but when it comes to mandatory disclosure, they want to make sure whatever it is is material to the financial well-being of the of the company involved. So I think you'll see constant involvement and, again, try to influence this process. In Chairman Gensler's confirmation hearing, which Kyle referenced, this was a huge topic, not just climate, but also political involvement, disclosures by by companies, the trade associations they belong to, the direct political contributions they make to political parties or to state parties, so on and so forth. You know, what kind of disclosures have to be made there? And I think that the SEC will move in that direction, but the scrutiny will be great from those who don't quite agree with the direction in which they're going. So yeah, this is going to be topic number one. And I think it's going to end up ultimately probably in the courts as a lot of controversial rulemakings do. Uh, But we're a long way away from that. I agree with Kyle. I'd say we're looking at a 2022 issue uh, where this these rules get finalized. Yes, yeah, hard to remember. It's 2021 sometimes <laughs> since we sort of lost 2020. Um, but Kyle, another question for you. You know, another important factor here is the staff appointments or Gensler's appointments. And I don't know if it's because I'm paying more attention, but I feel like it's getting a lot more publicity this year in terms of who he is appointing to some of these key roles. So, can you give us some highlights of who we should be paying attention to? That's actually a great question. And to your point, it, it's interesting how in the current environment, it, it, everything is obviously way more political today than it was, I can tell you, 20 years ago when I started at the staff, that it is a, it's a different political environment. It's a different commission. And so that's really probably the biggest thing that stands out to me is just the staff and the public are paying attention to this what's going on right they're paying attention to the politics and and they're they're very aware i'd say you kind of answer that question though i think most of the audience is likely interested in probably court fin and and what what the impact will be there and, and also enforcement right because that's that's really kind of the the direct impact and you know one position i think out there which was the director of enforcement we i think that's a very very important uh, position um recently um saw uh you know some activity there with alex o being named as director and then about five six days later then stepping down resigning for personal reasons and so you know i, I think that is one area to watch that gets a lot of attention from the Hill. I don't expect to see many other changes in the enforcement division, although, um, you know, we, we definitely could see changes in their focus on, on some of the cases they bring, you know, and as a reminder there, and I think this is just for this audience, you know, at the December AICPA conference, the chief accountant, Matt Jakes, um, in enforcement discussed some of the initiatives. And I think these initiatives will continue under 
this administration. So I want to highlight this. Um, really, their, their focus on books and records cases, which I think is really stands out to me, the internal controls cases they've been bringing, their EPS initiative, um, which which involves them, them looking closely at uh, quarterly earnings um, and then companies just barely meeting or exceeding their estimates. Um, and then even the benchmarking disclosures within filings um, to really identify outliers for further analysis. I mean, that's something I think that typically, you know, most would view as a court fin type of role. Court fin still is doing that, but enforcement also is doing it. I imagine they're probably leveraging some of the data capabilities that they have, especially with, with inline XBRL now. I'd say in Corp Finn, John Coates remains as acting director. Um, there's no new news to report on that and whether uh, he'll be permanent. Why does Corp Finn matter? Um, I think two reasons. Um, first, it's the filing review program, right? And so Coates can certainly influence the, the areas the staff focuses on during the, the review and comment process. Um, the other area is, is rulemaking. Um, and I can tell you that the staff in Corp Finn spend a lot of time um, especially over the last few years on rulemaking, um, I expect it's going to continue, especially with this uh, administration's focus on climate and ESG. I guess there's probably two you know, activities in that space to highlight as an example there. I mean, Christina Wyatt was appointed by Coates as his senior counsel on climate and ESG. Um, she comes from Latham and Watkins, and and we're seeing that she's she's the one that is is holding meetings with the staff, with companies, and the public on the topic of ESG and climate. So she appears to be spending the bulk of her time there. Um, Satyam Khanna, who was senior policy advisor for ESG and climate uh, during Commissioner Lee's short stint that she had as as acting chair, he now appears to be spending some of his time working uh, directly with Corp Finn on, on these issues. And so, and we're seeing that through kind of the, when you look at the SEC's website, you can see that you know, all of these meetings, they actually publish the meetings they have with the public so that people are informed about who's involved and in interacting in this space. If I could just comment on that as well, I totally agree. And you mentioned earlier, Heather, about rulemaking, and we talked about increased scrutiny from the political side, keeping an eye on the process. With Chairman Gensler's recent hires, uh, I think there's been scrutiny that I haven't seen before looking at staff choices. Uh, Usually it's just left at the discretion of the chair. But I think that there has been a mandate here, given the chairman Gensler and their high expectations that he's going to take the agency in a new, more robust direction. Uh, if you look at what happened with Alex O, there was some criticism of her selection in certain circles, uh, and then obviously a, a resignation shortly thereafter. Chairman Gensler, senior staff, each of them have different backgrounds, but I would say you know more on the progressive side of the political spectrum, if you will, uh, also created a new position, I believe, of policy director, which did not exist before. And then some rumblings that I've heard about the Office of the Chief Accountant is that maybe it's more likely that selection to come from academia as opposed to some of the larger firms where historically that selection has been made. So, you know, these might be little things, but I think taken all together, you can't deny that there's definitely a, a new focus to maybe move the SEC in a in a different direction and maybe a little bit more robust and a little bit more active. So I do think the staff selections have been interesting. And then one other point just on that kind of new SEC, if you will, Chairman Gensler was originally nominated and confirmed to former Chairman Clayton's term, which expires uh, on June 5th. Now, he would have been able to remain in that position through the end of the Congress or the end of 2022. So there was no danger that he would be removed months after being confirmed. But I don't know if that's the biggest endorsement to have the the expiring term. 
So within about a week of being confirmed, he was then nominated for a new five-year term to take him through the end of the Biden presidency and quickly confirmed. And again, not trying to read too much into the tea leaves, but I think that was, again, an endorsement to say that we in the leadership of the Congress are expecting great things from the SEC and expecting maybe just a change in the direction of the SEC. And we look at your background at the CFTC and what you did there post Dodd-Frank, which uh, I believe a lot of people thought was great work, was taking kind of a sleepy agency and bringing it to the forefront of the financial regulatory space or stage. And I think those people expect to see that at the SEC. And I think confirming him to the full five-year term was evidence of you know, we believe in you. We won't, we want to see you do at the SEC what you did at the CFTC. One thing to add to that, which is just all spot on, um, and it's, I mean, it's obviously incredibly interesting to see kind of the all of these developments. But the one thing I'd add is the SEC's rulemaking. You know, th- this is a a well oiled machine. They have it down. They have dedicated rule writers. They pull in subject matter experts to work on rulemakings. I can tell you that uh, Gensler is going to have a good army of people um, that are going to be working on these. And and Michael, to your point, he was a no-nonsense regulator at CFTC and actually accomplished a lot in a short period, um, was apparently far out in front of other regulators. And so I can imagine that with the tools that he has at his disposal, um, with the staff, um, an excellent staff, they're going to be very busy and they're going to accomplish a lot in, in a, I would expect, a, a short period. So, Kyle, one question, uh, Michael anticipated one of my questions, because this new policy director, I believe, as Michael said, that's a new position and has obviously gotten a lot of press. How does that role factor in or is just another data point supporting the points you guys have already made? I think it's a data point. It's a very important data point. I think what what we'll see is is and Michael, you can jump in, but I think what we'll see is it looks as if she's going to really be advising on policy and really have a, a heavy voice in kind of the rulemaking um, that they that they do over the next few years. So um, that that actually is the one thing that stood out to me. And obviously, with her background at the AFL CIO, I think that is pretty telling. Uh, probably the direction that Gensler does want to head. And I guess I just realized we didn't say who it was. So maybe you can give us the the ten seconds on who was actually appointed to this role. Yeah, sure. The new policy director is Heather Slavkin-Corzo, who comes from the AFL-CIO, where she was a protege of Damon Silvers, who's been active in the investor advocacy community for a long, long time. And I think her appointment is is incredibly important. But I also think, again, to my earlier point, that it's just taken individually. It's interesting, but taken in concert with the other appointments that have been made, I think you can't deny that there's a certain uh, focus uh, an emphasis that is being made by the new chairman. A couple other individuals have been hired and they've been pulled from Capitol Hill, from influential and more progressive members of the Democratic Party. So I think when you look at all of the hires, then yeah, th- there's definitely a focus taking the SEC in a, in a particular direction. So Michael, let me just do one more bit of background or ask one more background question. And you touched on both of these which would be the confirmation hearings, as well as Biden's address to the joint session of Congress. Anything else to highlight from those that we should keep in mind as we're thinking about the where the SEC is going to go directionally? Well, I'll mention one thing. I, I, I've made a point of discussing the lack 
of partisanship. It's very difficult to find issues on Capitol Hill where the two parties agree. But I will say one where they found a lot of common ground and which was also in President Biden's address to Congress, and that is China. A very aggressive stance towards China in everything from you know trade to also capital markets uh, has found a lot of bipartisan support. Uh, last Congress, the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act passed, and interestingly enough, it passed by voice vote in both chambers. And again, we haven't had much kumbaya part, uh, bipartisanship in a long, long time. So this is not a Biden administration, Trump administration, Obama administration, Bush administration. Uh, this has been a struggle for a long time. But on, when it comes to China, there's definitely been a lot of common ground. And that law now is in the final stages of the rulemaking process, both at the SEC and also uh, with assistance from the PCAOB, because the, the legislation deals with possibly delisting Chinese companies that have auditors where the PCAOB is not allowed to go in and do inspections. So I think that's a, a great example of where Capitol Hill the Biden administration and the SEC's focus. And again, as we discussed with climate earlier, China is something that is going to transcend the entire federal government when it comes to especially trade and things like that. Uh, you're going to see a, a renewed focus on our relationship with China. I'll put it that way because it's probably the most diplomatic. Well, and I think to that point, I think there's going to be a lot of interest to see how that law unfolds. But Let's wait and see when we have more information. Maybe we can revisit that. So let me get then into a few specifics and a few of these you've mentioned, but I want to dig deeper. And so, Michael, one of the things you've mentioned is cryptocurrency and you know the expected focus on digital assets. And we know that that's in Gensler's background. So anything particular from a focus perspective we can expect to see in that area? Prior to getting into that, just want to mention, so everybody's aware, this has already been noticed, so most of our listeners probably probably already know this, but on May 6th, Chairman Gensler is going to testify before the House Financial Services Committee, and it's ostensibly uh, a GameStop market structure hearing. It's the third hearing that they've had on the, in the House on this particular topic, but I think you'd be naive to think that this hearing is going to be solely on market structure or on GameStop. I think GameStop has lost a little bit of momentum. I think what you're going to have is both sides, members of the House Financial Services Committee, with the opportunity to ask Chairman Gensler an array of questions on topics that we've discussed and, and others that we probably won't have time to get to. So we've done a lot of uh, a lot of guesswork on this podcast today. On May 6th, you're going to hear from Gensler what the priorities are and where he thinks he's going to go. And he's going to have the freedom of being the confirmed chairman of the SEC, whereas at his confirmation hearings, he had to be a little bit more coy in what he would say and what he wouldn't say. Uh, but with regard to crypto, it's a great question. I think a lot of people in that space, observers of that space, are looking at Gensler not only because he's a seasoned political and uh, you know market player, but also because he obviously has a personal interest in the topic. Uh, he taught classes on blockchain and and Bitcoin while he was at MIT, and he comes in with a, a digital asset that is on the rise, so to speak, uh, not just in in value, but also in the greater economic conversation. As we mentioned earlier, you talked about interagency involvement. This is one that's a perfect example that's going to have FSOC involvement, particularly the CFTC and Treasury. 
I don't know how bold he's going to be in the beginning on this. I think on investor protection and on fraud prevention, yes, I think he'll immediately come in because there are concerns there in the crypto market. But when it comes to bigger issues, as we said, like a crypto ETF, I think it's going to be it's going to take a little more time to figure out exactly where he wants to focus his energy. And I do think this is going to be, again, in concert with other agencies, including Treasury, CFTC. So there's a lot here. And I, I think that some expectations might be a little high. I think some people in that space, in the crypto space, feel like Gensler is going to be an advocate that's going to come in immediately and, and you know, kind of make news. I do think he will, but I think it might be a little bit more a process than that. And obviously, he's a stark difference from Clayton, former chairman Clayton, who w- was much more passive in this space um, to the chagrin of many, including some of his fellow commissioners. Let me ask you this, Michael, because I, I imagine you probably have more insight or thought on it just from the perspective of you know, what we see in statements from Commissioner Purse, Commissioner Hester Purse, and you know, all of her you know, kind of support for this industry or an advocate for this industry. I mean, what, do you think that Gensler is going to be aligned with her? Like, will, what, what do you expect to see? I mean, are we, do, we, do we expect fireworks in this space? Do we expect to see kind of everyone kind of getting on board and moving the trains along? Yeah, Gensler aligned with Purse. I, that's not what I would have thought in the first couple of weeks of the Gensler chairmanship. Right. But, uh, no, but yeah, and that's what I was referencing earlier. I think that you know she probably had some frustrations with former Chairman Clayton. Just that in this burgeoning market, she felt that the SEC should be you know having a more leadership role and maybe more in the near term. So where I think they're going to be aligned is in discussing and having the SEC get involved in this market. I don't know how aligned they're going to be as that train continues down the tracks. Uh, but yeah, obviously, this is a focus of hers. And again, maybe we'll see May 6th what Chairman Gensler says, but I know that expectations are high. And the only point I'm trying to make is our expect- expectations too high, that he's going to come in and all of a sudden be the crypto chairman. And maybe he will be. But I, I think the process might be a little bit slower. I think the focus in the beginning might be on fraud prevention, investor protection, things like that, and then working in concert with the other regulatory agencies, then addressing exactly how to handle crypto moving forward. Okay, so then, Kyle, let me go back to you with another topic that is dominating the news these days, which would be SPACs. And any crystal ball ideas of where we might expect the SEC to go in, in that area? That's another uh, loaded question we could talk about for, for hours, I, I imagine. You know, I, I think, look, we've all been watching the news and see kind of what's been going on in the, in the SPAC space. And I won't spend a lot of time talking about kind of everything going on there. I think it's probably a little too early to tell, you know, with respect to, you know, what's Chair Gensler going to do. I mean, if I had to guess, I think we'll continue to see this you know, increased you know, scrutiny, which we're currently seeing. Um, you know, as some may be aware, that there, there has been a lot of, of SPAC attention, you know, via public statements from the agency's, you know, chief accountant, and of course, um, from from Courtfin's director on the topic. Um, I think most view those those statements as warnings, which some attribute to the probably the recent cooling off of of the SPAC market. We're also already seeing, at least in our own work, um, our own reviews, that the staff has increased its focus 
on, on these issues, and, and they're really honing in on on some of these transactions. Um, they're they're looking at you know issues such as projections, and and I think that it really shows in the comments that they're issuing. We're seeing a lot more comments on the DSPAC process, the merger um, itself, and so. I, Again, a little early, but I, it's going to be interesting, I think, to monitor the space. You know, sometimes the market takes care of these things, right? But I, I, I don't know. In this one, I, I do think it's it's an area that has evolved over time. It's not just been over the last couple of years. I mean, SPACs have been around for for a number of years. And so, you know, and they've, this SPAC activity has gone in cycles, you know. So I, I would expect that even if it kind of dies down a bit, it'll come back eventually. So I guess that they would be uh, looking to do something in this space. So, Kyle, a follow-on question to that then is a question of sort of the approach to rules making, particularly, you know, we've talked about some areas where maybe rules are needed. And do you expect the rules to go in a more principles-based direction, sort of like what we saw with the human capital rules? Or what is your expectation on that? I think we're going to see a switch to more prescriptive rules. That's just been my experience. Obviously, I think even outsiders can look and see that the difference between kind of how Democrats and Republicans view um, you know, rulemaking, um, you know, and, and obviously, as you might expect with Democrats in the majority now, you know, we're going to see more emphasis on investor protections, whereas I think the previous administration really focused on on capital formation, um, which usually means more detailed disclosure requirements, which, as one might expect, it's it's going to make it easier um, on the staff to actually enforce those requirements. And I think that's key, especially when you think about climate change. Um, you know, you have a 2010 interpretive release on climate change that, you know, frankly, just outlines what principles-based rules apply to those disclosures. And so um, I, I think that's the conversation that, that we see now is, you know, which which direction that, that they're going to head. Well, and I think, Kyle, to that point, you know, I've referenced the human capital rules that were passed in the fall and that were principles-based. And I know from the benchmarking we've done of the responses, they were sort of all over the place in terms of how people address that. And then we see with this recent SEC request, for comment from then acting chair Lee, very specific questions about metrics and measurement. And you know, there's 60 of them and people can listen to our other podcasts. But with that context, then we've, we've talked a little bit about climate throughout this whole thing, because it is such a central piece of the Biden administration. But what would you expect to see maybe coming from the SEC request for comment or anything else in the climate area? Well, during this conversation we've had today, one of the questions that we try to answer is, you know, what what are Chairman Gensler's priorities? What directions are the SEC going to go and what directions are the SEC going to go in the near term? That's the question, all of these different priorities. But what's the real focus? And if we haven't been clear yet, let's be clear now, climate and increased transparency and increased disclosures under the ESG umbrella. Uh, going back again to his confirmation hearing, the materiality question came up over and over again. But let's remember his answer. He said he totally agreed with materiality. Absolutely. There's no daylight between Republicans and him on materiality. But he said an important caveat that materiality is in the, end of, in the eye of the investor. So if the investor believes it's material, then it should be disclosed. So, and again, as you referenced with Acting Chair Lee, the reason that 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 action took place was because they didn't want to wait for Chairman Gensler to be confirmed to then start the process. As we discussed how long the rulemaking process can take, they wanted that clock to start earlier than him entering the building, which it did. 
So, you know, I don't think we have to guess at what the top priority it is climate, it is ESG, and it is increased disclosure and greater transparency in the financial reporting process. So your comment on materiality, I'm sure the interest of a lot of our listeners. So I'm going to ask another crystal ball, perhaps opening a can of worms. Do either of you think that we may see some additional definitions of material coming out of the SEC or are we going to stick with our historic point of view or too soon to tell? I'll say that to my earlier point, I think that that question is ultimately going to end up in the federal court system. <laughs> but I think that people with much uh, further uh, legal degrees than I have, which is zero, are going to answer that question. All right. That, that's a, a good answer to a very difficult question. So, gentlemen, really appreciate all the insight today. And, uh, Michael, I did laugh a little when you said we were trying to answer the question of his key priorities. So I do hope we did that. But I'm giving, going to give you guys a final chance to emphasize any points. And I'd like to just hear a key takeaway for our audience from both of you. So, Kyle, why don't I start with you? I'd say keep an eye on what Chair Gensler says in the coming uh, week, next week, um, any public statements that he makes, and then, of course, on the Reg Flex agenda as well. And Michael? I would say look at what Chairman Gensler did at the CFTC post Dodd-Frank. Look at the enforcement activity. Look at the way that he put forth rules and enforced those rules. Look at the activity of that agency. And I think that you could expect the SEC to do a similar, uh, a similar maneuver, but kind of on steroids. So I think this is going to be the most active SEC that we have seen in decades. So, and I think, Michael, to that point of view, when I was listening to you guys talk today, I kept thinking this is so much for our audience to deal with. And I'm sure many of them were cringing to hear that comment. But I guess from a silver lining, we can just uh, be, appreciate the fact that people are looking at financial reporting and the financial reporting ecosystem is an important part of our economy. So we'll look at the, the positive when we think about all this change. So, uh, so anyway, as always, gentlemen, really appreciate your insights and definitely look forward to having you back as we start to see this unfold. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. That does it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Join me back here every Tuesday for new episodes on all things accounting and reporting. And on Thursdays, join me for our Forecast 2021 mini-series for CFOs and controllers. This Thursday, we're getting an update from our Washington insider, PwC's Roz Brooks, to hear the latest on what's been going on that may affect your business. So that you never miss an episode, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts and to stay up to date on all the latest content. Let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.